Morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you. It's a good day, right? This is a day that we celebrate the life, death, and the resurrection of Christ. This is a day where it's filled with joy and anticipation and longing and hope and glory, right? Because the the death does not have victory over us, right? This is this is a hope. This is a joy. This is something that we delight in. Guys, the resurrection is an amazing thing. The resurrection is one of my favorite doctrines because in the resurrection, we see that Jesus is confirmed to be the Son of God. It confirms who He said He was, who He proved Himself to be. The resurrection affirms that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied. This is an amazing hope for us. The resurrection proves to us that we will have new life, that we can receive the Holy Spirit through the new life of Christ, that that is ours, that is given to all who would repent and believe. And it guarantees that both the righteous and the dead, the living and the wicked, will all be raised and stand before the judgment throne of Christ. This is all bound up in the beautiful doctrine of this day that we celebrate. I like what, what uh, Caleb said a little while ago, that, you know, this is Easter. We're glad you're here. But uh, we don't just celebrate the resurrection of Christ one day out of the year. We are people of the resurrection. The resurrection is central to Christianity. I mean, there's no hope from it, apart from it. I mean, to deny the resurrection is to deny the Christian faith. There is no Christian faith apart from the resurrection. It is the hope. It is the guarantee. It is central to what we believe. But if we're honest, this is one of the most doubted doctrines in the Christian faith. This is the one that's maybe the most questioned. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? I mean, can't I just... You believe in the moral example of Jesus and try to live a good life and and, uh, maybe God will save me in the end? Do miracles like this really, really happen? And people question this. This seems unbelievable. It seems supernatural. So as a pastor, you have to deal with that on Easter, right? And then there's this other fact that, that, you know, Easter is one of the two... Two biggest days of the year as far as having guests, of having people come in. You know, hasn't really happened for us yet, but one day it will, you know. <laughs> but nevertheless, we're glad you're here. But I mean, so as a pastor, you've got this, this reality knowing that, man, I, I basically have one shot to provide credibility to this doctrine that so many people question, right? And so, Oftentimes, Easter sermons aren't really sermons at all. They're just apologetic arguments, giving every kind of proof known to man for, uh, for the reality of the resurrection. Because you get this one shot, or maybe one shot every six months to try to reach these people if you ever see them again. Um, and so, there's always this temptation for us to, to make it about that, right? To, to make it this apologetic argument. And maybe that's what you've come to expect on Easter Sundays. You kind of know, hey, this is the day where everybody gets up and they kind of prove, you know, all these different things. But if that's your experience, that's not what's going to happen here. It's not. I, uh, I don't believe that the Spirit works through apologetic arguments. I don't. I don't believe that the Spirit works through just the rationale of men. 
The Spirit works through the Word. And so that's what I'm going to preach on. And not to mention the fact that every one of us here have preconceived notions about the resurrection. As far as its importance, as far as its centrality, or whether or not we even believe it. We have already kind of come to conclusions about the resurrection. So when we come into church services like this, all the reason, all the persuasiveness, all the argumentation, no matter how credible, no matter how rational or reasonable, no matter how persuasive the arguments of men are, nevertheless they're the arguments of men. And they won't change those preconceived notions. Only the Word of God can do that. Faith comes only through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so if, if we're going to combat these questions, these doubts, if we're going to be able to bolster your belief in the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's going to come through the Word. And so that's what we're here to do today. I, I'm, I'm glad you're here. But I want to just caution you right out front to think carefully about your preconceived notions on the resurrection. How central is this to your life? And you need to take that preconceived notion, those presuppositions, those conclusions, and you need to test them against the Word of God. Today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. And that's page 910 in the Bibles there in the chairs. I'd encourage you to open that up and look with us. And we'll see from this text that Jesus, witnessed by many, ordained by God, prophesied in Scripture, this man you killed is both Lord and Christ, who offers you the hope of resurrection. That's the direction that we're going, so I hope that you'll read with me. Again, Acts Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, page 910. It says, Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it is not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, May I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day? Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The first truth we see in this passage is that the resurrected Jesus was witnessed by many. The book of Acts could easily be called the gospel of the resurrection. Could easily change the name because it is so focused on the resurrection. The resurrection is mentioned 37 times in this book. It has a central place in every single recorded sermon and speech that was delivered by the apostles there. The very witness, their very witness is centered on the reality that Jesus rose from the grave. Acts 1.8 gives us that central purpose of the book. That those who witnessed the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, they were to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This theme of witness, which occurs 20 times in Acts, is always inseparably intertwined with the theme of resurrection. They were to bear witness. They were to proclaim. They were to tell other people the good news that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter and to the apostles, that He appeared to as many as 500 brothers at one time. He appeared to James and then again to the apostles and then last, He appeared to Paul. Each of them, their witness, their credibility, their authority was derived from the fact that they had seen and that they had been commissioned by the risen Christ. They were to go out and tell others the good news of Jesus. Not that He taught and ministered. Not that He died an exemplary sacrificial death on the cross. They were to go and tell about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There is no witness apart from the resurrection. This passage here in in Acts chapter 2 is the first public recorded witness of Jesus' resurrection. This is the first public proclamation. It's Pentecost. It's a special worship celebration of the Jews. They've gathered together there in Jerusalem. Jesus had, had just descended into heaven and his followers who were there, they were, they were kind of huddled up and laying low, praying for whatever was next. They kind of, they were waiting around. And then suddenly, as they were gathered together, the Spirit descends upon them like a mighty rush of wind, like flaming tongues of fire. And they begin speaking in these native languages that other people can understand. These foreigners who have come from places like Mesopotamia and Cappadocia and Asia and Egypt and Libya from all over to celebrate the the Pentecost, they're able to understand these men as they're speaking, as they're proclaiming of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's so bewildering and so confusing and so amazing that many people actually thought they were drunk. It was, a, it was fantastic. But this was a direct result of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Peter says to them, listen, this was prophesied long ago in the book of Joel. This what you're seeing is, is, the fact, is the result of the fact that Christ has risen. And so Peter begins preaching about these things that he himself is eyewitness to. We remember that, that Peter has followed Jesus for three years. He's listened to him 
preach and teach countless times. He's seen Him minister and perform signs and miracles and wonders. He Himself was even given the power by Christ to go out and to proclaim the Gospel and to cast out demons. He was there when Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus was handed over. He denied Jesus three times. He heard that Christ died on the cross. He knew where the tomb was. He ran there three days later to find that tomb empty. He saw the many appearances of the resurrected Jesus, and He was there as Jesus Himself ascended into heaven. That was Peter's witness that He was proclaiming to us. But He's not alone. Others were with Him. Others saw and testified as well. But He doesn't even stop there. He said, listen, you guys, you people from all over, Jesus, you know Jesus. You've heard about Him. You've, You've seen Him act. I mean, look again in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and signs uh, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's saying this to the people in Jerusalem, but he's also saying this to people that have come from Mesopotamia and Cappadocia and Asia and Egypt and Libya. All these people have heard of Jesus or they have seen the ministry of Jesus. They, they've They've been eyewitnesses themselves to the mighty works of Christ. He says, I'm not the only one who has seen and heard these signs and wonders and works that Jesus has performed. Many of you have witnessed them firsthand. You yourselves know that this was no ordinary man, that he has divine authority to preach and to teach and to heal and to do amazing things. He was in your midst. You saw him. You saw him. We're here to tell you that he, though he died on a cross and was buried, this man now lives. So in verse 32 and 33, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's saying, all these people that are with me, They're witnesses together. Ask them. Ask them to tell you about Jesus. They will give their testimony. They will bear witness to the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. But not only that, this stuff that you're seeing around you, you know that these people aren't drunk. You know, you can hear what they're saying in languages that they don't know. You can understand. You're seeing it right before your own eyes. How are you going to explain this work of the Spirit? apart from the resurrection of Christ. You yourselves, again, are witnesses to this very fact. The fact that this is the unfolding work of Christ. The resurrected Christ. Surely, you cannot deny the things that you saw. The things that you are now seeing. He's risen. Now, I wonder what your reaction to the testimony of Peter or to these followers of Christ or even the testimony of this crowd is. We know from verse 41 that 3,000 of them accepted the message and believed. So they too bear witness to the reality of the resurrected Christ. I wonder what you believe about that. I wonder how their testimony affects you. How does it 
change you, your thinking, the way that you feel right now? Does it have any bearing at all? We live in a skeptical society, a society that questions and doubts everything, that, that asks two, three, four, five times over before we'll ever believe something. We, we live in a day that's marked by individualism and self-pursuit where it is actually advantageous for us to lie and cheat and steal and deceive in order so that we can profit ourselves. And so we naturally think that that's the way that everybody for all time operated. That's not the way it worked in that day. The society could only function as that culture was honest, as they were truthful. And we have to remember, too, that in that day, people who were caught in lies and bearing false witness, they were killed, they were imprisoned, or they were banished. This is what happened to people when they were, when, when they were lying about what was happening. Their witness had to be credible in order for that society to function. And if you read through the book of Acts, you know that Peter and these followers were hunted for this message that they were proclaiming. They were hunted down. Many of them died. Peter was crucified upside down. James was killed with the sword. John was exiled to Patmos. These people suffered and died for what they were proclaiming. They suffered and died for it. And I just wonder, would you die for a lie? I mean, really? If you knew something was true, wasn't true and you were going ahead and proclaiming it, would you die for it? And if not, what does that say about their testimony? So the resurrected Jesus was witnessed by many. But second, this was ordained by God. Jesus is not just some random moral teacher. He's so, far, he's so much more than that. He was attested by God. He was resurrected by God. And he was exalted by God. All of this happened according to God's definite plan. All of it happened according to God's prior knowledge. In verse 22, Peter proclaims that Jesus was attested by God through these works and signs and wonders that God performed through him. These miraculous works did uh, that God did through him actually proved that he's God's son. They were displays. They were exhibits of the authority that Jesus had. They marked him out. They set him apart. They said they gave evidence to the fact that Jesus really was God's son. <clears throat> but then Peter says in verse 23 that Jesus was delivered over to death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now we could camp out here for a long time. A really long time. But, but time is short and we need to keep moving. And the short of it is this. I mean, Peter wants us to know that Jesus' death is no accident. This was intentional. This was God's plan from the beginning. There was no plan B or C or Q or Z. This was plan A. It always existed for this purpose. Nothing exists or happens outside of God's perfect will and God's perfect knowledge. This was no surprise, not to Jesus and certainly not to God. This was ordained by God. This was purposed by God. He has a fixed purpose for Jesus to come, to die, and to be raised. God's plan included all of that. It was his set plan. And it was known to Jesus as well. If you read through Mark, if you read through one of the Gospels, it doesn't matter. You know that Jesus predicted his death and his subsequent resurrection three times. Three times he told them what would happen. 
Right? See that in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. We're going to get there. But until then, you just need to know that this, this happened. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that He came to give His life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. He says, But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. But this Jesus' resurrection, again, is another way of validating the fact that He is the exalted Son of God. This is no accident. Jesus' death is at the heart of God's definite plan. And so is His resurrection. In verse 24, Peter says, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Jesus could not be held by death because death cannot overcome the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was not held by death because God will honor His covenant promises that He made to Adam and Abraham and David and so many others. It can't be overcome by death because Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life and and death is the punishment of sin. If He didn't sin, then there's no reason for Him to die. Or... His sinless sacrifice actually defeated the power of sin and death. And because the perfect Son of God, because He's the perfect Son of God, He could not be contained by it. Therefore, Peter says in verse 32 that this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. God approved the perfect sacrifice of Christ for sin and death. He raised Him up to life again to confirm both His person and His work, to confirm who He was and why He came. And this Son of God, who died on the cross to pay the ransom for the sin of many. That's why He's here. This was God's plan. But even more than that, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was ordained by God so that God might exalt Him as both Lord and Christ. In verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter's clear. Listen, God exalted Him. God gave Him the promise of the Holy Spirit so that He might pour it out right here. And that is what you're seeing. These all give validity to the reality of the exalted Christ. It says, God has made Him both Lord and Christ. In Jesus, the invisible, transcendent, holy and perfect God was made imminent. He is here with us. He is made visible. He is declared to be Savior and King over all. This is God's definite plan. This is because of God's foreknowledge. This was from the beginning that the Son of God would take on flesh in order to prove that His life, witness, sacrifice, and resurrection was indeed true of God's will and that He is Savior and Lord, having all authority as Creator, as Redeemer, and as King. Again, so much more could be said on this, but we need to keep moving through the text. In addition to the eyewitness of many and the definite plan of God, Peter adds that Jesus' resurrection was third prophesied in Scripture. In verses 25 through 31, Peter applies Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 to the resurrection of Jesus. 
says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh will dwell also in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now David was a king of Israel, an ancestor of Jesus, who lived a thousand years, roughly, before Jesus was born. God had promised David that one of his descendants would be king, that he would be on the throne forever. But if you know the history of Israel's kings, you know that David's line didn't last all that long. Yet God's promise remained. And God said so over and over and over again, that he would keep his promise to David. This psalm that Peter quotes is David's response to that promise of God that he would have an eternal heir. His heart is glad. His tongue rejoiced. He he lives in hope because he knew that he would not be abandoned. He knew that the Holy One would not see corruption. But what Peter says next is shocking. It's pretty unbelievable. He said, listen, David died. We know this. We know where his tomb is. It's just down the street. We can go and see it. David was not speaking of himself, but God's promise to him. He is speaking of Christ. David, or Peter affirms that David was a prophet who foresaw and who spoke about Jesus' resurrection. It's just unbelievable. It was Jesus' soul that David knew was not abandoned. It was Jesus' flesh that he knew would not see corruption. The Lord was always before him. Jesus, the risen Lord, was always before him, rejoicing his heart, making him glad, instilling a hope. And this vision of David saw was of the exalted Christ. He was beholding Jesus. That's amazing. He is the incorruptible Holy One, the Son of David, who will rule as King forever. And as a prophet, Peter says that in some way, David saw and understood that God's promise to him would be fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. This is amazing. A thousand years before Jesus was even born, David saw the resurrected and exalted Christ. But not only did David speak of the resurrection of Jesus, David also recognized that this Son of God, that his own ancestor, was also his Lord. In verses 34 through 36, Peter again quotes David, but this time from Psalm 110. So for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David looks 
and he sees God say to his Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God says to his Lord. David knew that this promise was not to him, but to Jesus, who God made both Lord and Christ. And what we see is time and time again, Scripture predicts and Scripture declares the divinity, the humanity, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Christ. And here, a thousand years before it happened, David prophesied of the resurrection of Jesus. So he was witnessed by many. He was ordained by God. He was prophesied in Scripture, this man whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. Paul's main point, Paul's crescendo, or I'm sorry, Paul, Peter, Peter's main point, his crescendo, his climax, is found in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That Messiah that was prophesied in Scripture the one that you have been waiting for, that exalted and anointed King of David, that Holy One that you have been longing for, that you have read about in Scripture, that you have been praying that He would come, that He would return, He was here. You saw Him and you killed Him. You murdered Him. You crucified Him. So I'm here declaring to all of Israel that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. I mean, could you imagine being there in that crowd? I mean, Pentecost is a major celebration. You're going there. You're celebrating God's, God's provision for you. This is the first of the harvest. All these great things are happening. And, and you just it's a time of joy and hope. And, and you see that God is faithful and you're longing. You're looking forward to God fulfilling His promises. You're waiting on this Messiah, this promised one. This one that you've been praying for. This one that you've been hearing about in the synagogue since you were a small child. Right? That He would come. That He would, he would gain victory. That He would redeem. That He would save. And, and you've been waiting for this the whole time. And Peter says, yeah, He was here. He was here. You saw Him. Jesus of Nazareth. And you killed Him. You killed Him. Thanks. It's a very confirming and encouraging message. I feel very good about myself right now. <laughs> I mean, bam. I mean, he just hits him with it. But he not only says that to the people there in Jerusalem. He says, let all the house of Israel know. All of you. And not even just all of Israel. Remember, there were these people that came in from from Cappadocia and from Egypt and Libya. Guys, this was a long way to travel for this celebration. And these people are here and he's saying to all of them, you crucified the Lord in Christ. You killed Jesus. All of you killed Jesus. If I'm there, I'm thinking, what? I wasn't even here. What are you talking about? How did I kill Jesus? How am I responsible Well, hear these words from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died on the cross for sin. God laid on him the iniquity of us all, of all Israel, of all these people traveling around, and of you and me. We all killed him. We all nailed him there. The guilt, the responsibility of Jesus' death belongs to all who have sinned. This goes beyond the lawless Romans. This goes beyond those who, those Jews that hated Jesus and delivered him over and threatened to riot if Pilate didn't put him to death. This is our responsibility. We all share in that. It goes beyond Israel and those who heard Peter's message. It includes us. Jesus died to pay the ransom for sin, for your sin. You killed Jesus. You killed him. We all crucified Christ because we're all sinners. We've all rebelled against God in thought and word and deed. We've tried to live our lives without him. We've tried to live as though this is my world and I am God. We have acted treacherously against Him. We have profaned and denied His very nature and character. We have mocked Him. We have spurned Him. We have hated Him. We've nailed Him to the cross. Friends, our sins are far more worse than you and I could ever imagine. It's rebellion. Little white lies are not little white lies. They're big, black ugly, blasphemous, denying the very nature of the truth-giving, truth-standard, truth-all-trustworthy God, right? God is the God of truth. God gives His Spirit of truth. God is the standard for truth. And so anytime you deny the truth, you fail to proclaim the truth, you are telling us something false about God. It's a personal affront to Him. So there is no such thing as a little sin, and we've all done it. Every one of us have sinned. There's not an innocent person here. And because we have sinned, we've crucified Him. We've crucified our Lord. I wonder what you're thinking when you hear that. Are you cut to the heart when you hear that? Does that grip you? Or... Maybe, does it make you afraid? Does it make you angry? Or are you sitting here and you can care less? It has no impact on me. I'm just callous and cold to the fact that I nailed him to the cross. You praise God it doesn't end there. Witnessed by many ordained by God, prophesied in Scripture, this man whom you killed is both Lord and Christ, who offers you the hope of resurrection. We're not going to read it, but in verses 37 through 41, we see what happened next. Many were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter, they begged Peter, they pleaded with Peter, what shall we do? 
And so he says that they repented of their sins and believed in Jesus, that they were baptized in order to make a public profession of their faith. And it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there at all. It says that 3,000 were gathered in. They had received the Holy Spirit, but they continued to meet together daily. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They regularly met together for fellowship. They prayed and worshipped with unceasing awe and wonder. They served one another. They were committed to one another, and they continued to proclaim Christ so that the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And that was the response. That was the change. That was the result of them hearing and receiving the gospel message. That was the result of them understanding and believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Their lives were resurrected. Their lives were changed. They were living proof of Colossians Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, this is an amazing thing. For those who have repented and believe and have been transformed by the resurrection power of Christ, when you nailed Christ to the cross, you nailed your sin there. Isn't that amazing? They lived in hope of the resurrection. And this promise is for all of us. If you would follow in their pattern by repenting of your sin and by following after Christ. Your life can be transformed by the power of the gospel to live in the hope of the resurrection. That confidence that David had that we read about in Psalm 16, that could be yours. That joy, that hope, that could be yours. That security, that guarantee that Peter had because he'd received the Holy Spirit, that too can be yours. Like David, you can say, the Lord is always before me, therefore I will not be shaken. In Him my heart is glad and my tongue will rejoice. My flesh will dwell in hope. God will not abandon my soul or let me see corruption because through Christ's resurrection, I too will rise. God has made known to me the path of life in Christ and and will make me full of gladness with His presence. With Christ's presence. And like Peter, we can be confident because Jesus will pour out the Holy Spirit on all who call upon His name. All these promises are yours through the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, do you want them? Does this excite you? Do you long for that? I want joy. I want to be glad. I want to remain unshaken because my hope rests in something other than my own abilities or my circumstances. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that I can go out and live this kind of transformed life. I hope you want that. I pray that you want that. Witnessed by many, ordained by God, prophesied in Scripture, this man whom you killed is both Lord and Christ, who offers you the hope of resurrection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, your word, 
through the power of your spirit, will do its work in our hearts and in our minds. God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of how we have failed you and neglected you and tried to live without you. Forgive us for the ways that we fail to live in the hope of the resurrection. Yeah, we profess to know Jesus, but it really has no bearing on my life. God, I pray for us here. That these would not just be words. That these would not just be some proofs that Peter provided us. But this would be a life-transforming message to change us. I pray for those here, if there are some who have, who have not believed, that you would work in their hearts and that they would respond, that they would tell somebody, tell me, tell Caleb, tell Jim, tell somebody next to them. Pray for those who, who have made a profession but so often live as if this is of no consequence, that they would be pricked to the heart. God, I pray for us all that we would not live for ourselves but the one, for the one who died and was raised so that we might have hope. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen.